The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. If what the police are trying to do is prevent a serious crime, then I think it's permissible to lower the justification level. This is something that's recognized throughout our jurisprudence, that when prevention is the focus, we allow the government more leeway. Uh, we recognize that in uh, civil commitment statutes. We recognize it in Terry. Uh, what another justification for Terry is, is preventive technique. On the other hand, when it's, uh, it's a completed crime, the goal of the police is not to prevent a serious act, but rather to solve a serious crime. We do not differentiate based on crime. Prosecution has to prove crime is committed beyond reasonable doubt, whether it's a misdemeanor or the worst crime imaginable. It's always proof beyond reasonable doubt. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 19th, 2022. When we think about government surveillance, we often imagine something physical, a police officer executing a search warrant on a house or car. But increasingly, government surveillance, including the everyday work of police departments across the country, involves remote electronic monitoring or the analysis of massive amounts of digital information. A leading analyst of this transformation and of the implications it has for our privacy and security is Chris Slobogan, a professor at Vanderbilt Law School and one of the leading scholars of the digital Fourth Amendment. I sat down with Chris to discuss his new book, Virtual Searches, Regulating the Covert World of Technological Policing, in which Chris explains how the traditional legal framework for surveillance is out of date and what should take its place. We talk about the importance of taking a more flexible approach to what makes a search reasonable under the Fourth Amendment and why it's so important for legislatures to pre-authorize any police surveillance techniques. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 19th. Chris Lebogan on virtual searches. As you point out in the introduction to this excellent book, it's kind of a sequel to a book you published in 2007 about the threats from what was then new technology, right? Now it's, mm-hmm. now it's all hopelessly outdated technology. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to start our conversation by asking you what's changed in the intervening 15 years. And, you know, maybe in particular, have the themes that you identified in that earlier book, have they just accelerated or has anything changed direction? Yeah, I think a number of things have changed in 2007, which is why I wrote it. I didn't want this just to be a replay of the 2007 book. Um, so one obvious change you've already mentioned, which is the technology that police are using today is, is more sophisticated. There are certainly nascent versions of many of the technologies that I talk about in the book in existence in 2008. But today, even your podunk police departments are using automated license plate readers. They're using CTTV. Data mining has become much more prevalent, especially in the bigger departments. 
Um, there's much more prevalent use of drones. And there is also, generally speaking, much greater interest on the part of police departments to use technology, digitize information to their benefit. So all of that has changed significantly since 2007. Uh, but then there are, I think, two other changes that I think are worth mentioning. And of course, one is in terms of the law. Uh, back in 2007, the Fourth Amendment, which of course prohibits unreasonable search and seizures, had virtually nothing to say about technological policing outside of wiretapping and bugging. That's because of Supreme Court decisions that came down in the 70s and 80s. But since 2007, there has been significant change at the Supreme Court level. Now, whether that change is maintained or whether the current membership will backtrack on what's happened so far is still to be seen. That's another reason I want to write the book, though, is take advantage of this current moment in constitutional law when we have, I think, at least three Supreme Court decisions that can be used as a springboard to help regulate technological policing. And then the third change, and you've written a little bit about this yourself, is the whole political approach to technological surveillance and technological policing has changed. In other words, the politics are different now than they were in 2007. And that's primarily because of Edward Snowden. His revelations, um, I think, occasion a sea change in public attitudes toward police use of technology. Of course, his revelations were mostly about national security surveillance and things of that ilk, but it spilled over into the domestic policing context. That is, the, the negative reaction towards use of technology has spilled over into the domestic policing context. And I th thought that needed to be recognized as well. And I try to do so in the book. So l let's start with the, the, the scope of the surveillance that you're talking about. So, right, the book is titled Virtual Searches. And I was hoping you could just say a little bit more about, you know, what you take this domain of searches to be, right? Um, you know, it, it's funny, of course, because to the targets of the surveillance, I'm sure it feels very real rather than virtual. So, you know, what do you mean by that, that term? And, and how much are you focused in particular just on sort of high-tech enabled surveillance, which might be digitally or might be in the real world with, let's say, drones? Or are you focusing more on sort of actual kind of digital uh, surveillance? Right. Well, with the term virtual searches, I was trying to come up with some clever way of differentiating what the book's about from what I think most people consider a traditional search and seizure. That is a physical intrusion into a house or a car or someone's pocket. And that's, I'm not talking about that kind of search and seizure. Um, it is, generally speaking, a search that's, I, sh I guess I shouldn't use the word search because that's uh, prejudging whether the Fourth Amendment, in fact, makes this stuff a search. But of course, in the book, I argue all of this is a search and should be considered a search for Fourth Amendment purposes. So I guess I will continue to use the word search. I'm talking about searches that do not involve physical intrusion are often carried out covertly and often from a distance. As, as I say in the book, I mean, police used to have to go from door to door or file cabinet to file cabinet. Today, they can sit in their office or their squad car and get just as much, if not more, information than they could through physical intrusion. So that's a major change in policing. And actually, it had changed already in 2007 when I wrote my previous book, but it's even more the case now. So that's the phenomenon I'm trying to describe. And you, you mentioned in your question that people may be bothered by them. Well, that's true. But as again, because they're covert, very often people have no clue they are happening unless and until the police decide to act on it. 
Whereas in the traditional search and seizure situation, people know what's happening to them. They know their pocket has a police hand in it. They know the police are going to their house. They know that the police are going to their car. So I think there are some differences there, though not as great a difference as the Supreme Court seemed to think until the recent decisions that I referenced earlier. I know it's hard to have any sort of you know bottom line conclusions on the question of whether or not law enforcement has sort of greater capabilities on net now than it did in the past. But this is a debate that does sometimes come up. I mean, I think it's most notably come up in the encryption context, which you, which you touch on a bit in the book, this mm-hmm. debate between whether law enforcement is going dark, which is what law enforcement says, versus on the other hand, folks who think that you know, sure, encryption can be annoying, but really this is the golden age of of surveillance. And I don't want to focus on the encryption issue because it's not really central to your book, but just zooming out, you know, do you think that when you tally up all the law enforcement capabilities on the one hand versus, on the other hand, you know, the proliferation of secure communication that 15 years ago even would have been only the province of, you know, militaries, who do you think has the upper hand or do you think it's just not even useful to try to benchmark it because it's just so different today? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the book tries to strike a middle ground between police or I think, not surprisingly, fairly complacent about these this use of technology. They'd rather not have it regulated. That's not surprising at all. And then people, many of whom are legal academia, but other people as well, who either want to prohibit a lot of this completely or impose a warrant requirement, which I argue would be pretty much the same thing in a lot of the context I'm talking about. So I try to strike a middle ground. And in doing so, I take on this point that you are raising right now, which is what some people call the arms race. Okay, the criminals are getting technology, so the police need technology to counteract it, but the police should not be allowed to get the upper hand. Technology should not be so efficient and so pervasive and pervasive and effective, that it actually allows police to be more effective at crime fighting than they are now. And I put it the way I just put it on purpose, because I think it exposes why I don't like that argument. Okay, I don't see why we should be against the use of technology simply because it makes policing more effective. And I want to do a shout out to Rick Simmons, who's made a similar point in his book. Um, I think it's a very important point to make that technology actually, if regulated appropriately, might be a godsend it might actually make policing much more effective in ways that are not going to trench significantly more on privacy. It's no secret that we're not very good at crime fighting. I mean, even the clearance rates for homicide are 60% or below. And you get to other crimes, we're much, much worse. Maybe technology can help us with that. And if properly regulated, it can do so without, again, infringing significantly on what we consider to be important privacy and autonomy interests. Yeah, I I think that's a really important point. I mean, I think just too often, even the language that we use of a balance inevitably pits law enforcement versus criminals. But of course, that's crazy, right? Because criminal activity is not legitimate. We want law enforcement to totally dominate criminal activity. You know, the problem is that you have these negative externalities onto society. And so I think framing it that way, as, as you're doing, opens up the possibility for some positive sum gains, right? Where we're both better at solving crime, but we're also better at protecting mm-hmm. civil liberties, right? And then, of right. course, you know, the devil's in the details on, on that. So that, that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, most legal analyses of government surveillance, whether in the you know, academic literature that, that 
you know, we read all the time or the courts uh, in particular or just public focus on the courts uh, and in particular the way that the courts do and don't use the Fourth Amendment to limit surveillance. And obviously your book talks about that a bunch. But your book explicitly, at least as I read it, focuses and really wants us to focus on legislatures, right, Mm -hmm. in particular. Why is that? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One is I'm just, I'm trying to send a message to my fellow academics that we shouldn't fixate on the Fourth Amendment. I myself have done that throughout a lot of my career. But when push comes to shove, the courts at most can give us guardrails, can provide us parameters. They just are not set up to do the sophisticated job of regulation that we need if we're going to have technological policing. And of course, lawyers know this when they think about it, that courts need a case in controversy before they can say anything about anything, um, which means they need a specific case. And that specific case often is not representative of what happens. In fact, often it's a very hard case that provides the court with a very strange or at least relatively unusual set of circumstances. And so all the court can do, at least the lower court can do in that kind of situation, decide that case. And even when it gets to the Supreme Court, which of course is more willing to come up with generalities, the court often dodges the bullet. It's done so in the cases I was referencing earlier, in the Carpenter case, the Jones case, and so on. And so we can't get a comprehensive look at the technological policing problem that underlies the court decision. So that's one reason. And that's not a new reason. People have been aware of that reason for some time, that legislatures are better at coming up with comprehensive regulatory schemes. Uh, But in addition, at least the way I see the regulatory scheme working, the Constitution, at least as interpreted until now, doesn't directly address a lot of the issues. Um, Because I think in addition to what most courts have focused on, which is the process of, of acquiring, obtaining information through searches and seizures. There are issues having to do with retention of that information, security of that information, and accountability issues. I mean, yes, we have the exclusionary rule, but that's basically all the courts focus on in Fourth Amendment cases. And there are lots of other ways of holding police accountable. So I think legislatures are better situated to deal with those kinds of issues. It doesn't mean the courts can't address them. And I I wish the courts would at least make more pronouncements in general terms on these on, on these points. But I think legislatures are the entity that's going to be best suited to come up with detailed regulation. And of course, they can avail themselves of hearings where experts can testify about the kinds of technologies out there and what can be done to prevent their overuse or misuse. And yes, you've got amicus briefs and things like that the courts can access, but they're just not as useful. I don't think they can't be as comprehensive as what you can get in the legislative in a properly conducted legislative environment. What do you think about the court's performance when it comes to doing the core judicial work of providing these minimal guardrails, in particular, when it comes to updating them for technological change? I mean, you know, big criticism of the court often is, you know, whether it's because they can't get the expert testimony, as you pointed out, or just because, to be blunt, it's people who are generally you know, on the older side, all right, and may not be as comfortable or familiar with, with the technology. I mean, you know, we've had some pretty awkward oral arguments in which folks are trying to explain how you know, beepers work, um, not, not always uh, successfully. How do you think the court's recent performance, you know, in cases like, let's say, 
Riley versus California, which was about you know whether or not a cell phone could be searched as a matter of course on an arrest, or Carpenter versus United States, which is about you know what the government needs to do to acquire cell phone location data. You know, in both of those situations, the court did seem to grasp, or at least Chief Justice Roberts, right, uh, you know, did, did seem to grasp that the technology had advanced to a point where the doctrine needed updating. And I'm curious if you think that is a sign that the court, at least in the domain of providing these substantive guardrails, can deal with technology or that those are outliers. And, and even just when the court's doing its job as a court, it's just not good at dealing with technology. Yeah, well, thank you for reminding me of another reason why legislatures are better than courts, um, which is probably part of the intent of your question, that legislatures, at least in theory, can much more quickly adjust the law if needed. Um, because again, courts have to wait for a case in controversy. The, the decisions that I challenge most direct, Supreme Court decisions I challenge most directly in the book, and of course many other academics have done the same thing, came from the 1970s. And it took until this last decade for the court to readdress the issues that came up in those cases. That's way too long. If legislatures were prodded by courts to do the right thing, they could change the law in a year, in two years. They wouldn't have to wait for a case in controversy, and they can do so comprehensively. Now, your more general question is, how has the court done with respect to regulation of virtual searches? I think not well. Uh, I'm very happy they came down with the decisions you talked about, Riley and Carpenter and then Jones. But for reasons I've already suggested, they limit the decisions in those cases to the facts of those cases. So, for instance, in Jones, it involved 28 days of tracking using a GPS device planted on a car bumper. Well, the, the holding in that case, even though some people say, oh, well, now tracking is regulated by the Fourth Amendment, as you know. In fact, the court said we're, we're confining this case to its facts, which means if the GPS tracking is done using signals from a phone, there's no Fourth Amendment event. It has to involve the police have to engage in a trespass that is putting something in the bumper of your car before the Jones case is triggered. Now, some lower courts have decided, no, we're going to go further than that. But nonetheless, Jones has been limited in that way. And then also there's a limitation that the court made fairly clear that Jones so far only applies to prolonged tracking and not short-term tracking, which I actually think is good for my purposes, for the argument that I make in the book. I think this differentiation between prolonged and short-term technological policing is a useful one. And then in Carpenter, once again, confined to its facts. There's a footnote in Carpenter that says, we're not going to say anything about what we might have said had the cell site location information that, had been, that was obtained in that case had covered only a couple of days, as opposed to seven days or 120 days. So there is no clear statement, even with respect to cell site location information. And of course, the court also made clear, and we're only talking about cell site location information, not any other kind of information held by third parties. So Carpenter is a very important decision. And it might, in fact, as some suggestions, spell the beginning of the end for the third party doctrine. But it's got a long way to go before that happens, because they just focus on the case in front of it. So I, I know that we, you know, in our day jobs, teach criminal procedure to our students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I have these conversations with my students where they say, okay, so, you know, what, what what's the rule from Carpenter? And I, I can just, I sort of shrug at them. I wish I could mm -hmm. tell them something more. And, I, you know, I'm curious, do you, do you find the same difficulty oh, yeah. in trying to explain to your students, you know, what, what do these incredibly important cases actually mean? Because I, I actually don't know. 
Yeah. It, I mean, obviously, our job is to try to tell people what those cases should mean, even if they don't quite mean it. We want to read content into those decisions. And I try to, I do that, obviously, to some extent in my book. I say this is the way Carpenter should be interpreted from now on, that the third party doctrine should, in effect, be dead. And again, I'm not sure exactly how much the audience knows about the third party doctrine, but it's basically the idea that if you surrender voluntarily information to a third party, not just your friends or acquaintances, but a bank, a phone company, a Verizon, you assume the risk that third party will turn around and give it to the government. You have no expectation of privacy in that information. Well, Carpenter held with respect to cell site location information, you do have an expectation of privacy. But it still remains the case that information that your bank has, that you gave the bank or that your bank acquired about you through transactions with you, phone companies, the numbers they have that you've dialed and received calls from, all of that is unprotected by the Fourth Amendment, according to Supreme Court case law that goes back to the 1970s. Carpenter does not overturn that. So I try to go into all those nuances with my class. Um, one of my favorite moments in class when I talk about this, because students in invariably ask, well, why is it taking the court so long to even recognize these issues? And that goes back to your other question. The courts are slow on this. They, they could be much more, they, have, they could have much more alacrity when it comes to this kind of thing. Um, and one reason is they are just now starting to realize that the decisions they came down with in the 1970s don't just affect those other people. Those decisions affect people the justices know. They affect the justices. I think that's one reason we got Riley. All the justices have smartphones and they realize how much information that smart is in that smartphone. When they're talking about stops and frisk and your traditional searches and seizures, they find it much harder, I think, to empathize with the situation than they do with the smartphone situation or in that famous exchange uh, in the Jones case, I'm sure you're aware of, where the uh, Solicitor General is arguing that, hey, Jones was knowingly exposing his travels uh, to other people. He was traveling the public thoroughfares. And the court, of course, has long said, hey, if you know only expose your activities in public, you have no expectation of privacy. But then Chief Justice Roberts famously asked the Solicitor General, you, you mean they can put one of these tracking devices in our car and follow us around for 28 days? And the whole audience broke into laughter during oral argument. Um, and the Solicitor General sort of stumbled around and said, well, yeah, and you know the result in Jones. So let, let's turn to the, the kind of core argument of, of your book, which is that when we are trying to, and we in particular legislatures, but I guess all of us, right, in the democracy are trying to think through the future of virtual searches, we should do so according to sort of two principles. One substantive principle of proportionality and the other procedural principle that we might call you know, legislative authorization and, you know, other contexts you've called it sort of not a non-delegation kind of idea. I want to go through each of those. So let's start with the substantive principle of proportionality. What do you mean by that? And in particular, how is it different than the current substantive principle that applies to most, though not all, we'll get to that, most searches under the Fourth Amendment, which is probable cause? Right. So the proportionality idea is a very simple idea. It's that the justification for a search or seizure ought to be roughly proportionate to its intrusiveness or invasiveness. So if it's a very intrusive search or seizure, there ought to be more justification than it's not if it's not a very intrusive search and seizure. The court has 
adopted this idea in the seizure context as opposed to the search context. So in the famous case of Terry versus Ohio, they made clear that if the police are arresting someone, probable cause, which is the phrase used in the Fourth Amendment, probable cause is required for an arrest, but for a stop, which is seen as less intrusive than arrest. It's a brief stop that might precede a pat down, but it's a brief stop. It's not putting handcuffs on someone, taking them to the station house. That only requires reasonable suspicion, which is not as, uh, as onerous a justification as probable cause. Some people have quantified probable causes around a 50% level of certainty. People have quantified reasonable suspicion as anywhere between 20 and 30%, which is a heuristic one can use to sort of get a sense of those different justification levels. So that's that's an, an approach the court has taken in the seizure context. It has stated that it has been unwilling to adopt that position in the search context. It says ordinarily probable cause is required for a search. And my argument is simply that what they're doing for seizures, they should do for searches as well. And then, in fact, if you look at what the court's actually doing in some of its cases, it is applying a proportionality principle in some of its search cases, even though it adheres to what I call the it, it on the surface adheres to what I call the probable cause forever position, which is if it's a search, you need probable cause. And I think there are several negative effects of this probable cause forever position. One is it makes it very hard for even some liberal justices to say a police action is a search because they know if it's a search, all of a sudden probable cause is going to be required. And if probable cause is required, the police might not be able to carry out very basic investigative techniques that they need to carry out in order to develop probable cause. And of course, recognize that in the seizure context. Sometimes you need to do a stop to figure out if there's evidence that gives you probable cause for an arrest. Well, I think the same thing should happen in the search context. And so I argue, for instance, in a, in a case like Jones, that the tracking is short term. You don't need probable cause. It is a search. The tracking is a search. But you don't need probable cause. You only need reasonable suspicion and so on. I mean, I can flesh out the idea with further examples, but that's the basic approach. Yeah. And I, I just want to emphasize that because I think it's such an important point that I, I think students often don't appreciate. And I think you know the public often doesn't appreciate, which which is that we do not live, you know, maybe it'd be better if we lived in a hyper civil libertarian protecting society where everyone was super, super skeptical of policing all the time. But that's not the society that we live in. And so if you keep on ratcheting the standards for what has to happen when the police do a search, right, if you require that you have probable cause for everything, as you put it, naturally, you're going to get some narrowing of what the actual definition of search is. Uh, and then you get to this really problematic result where the legal definition of search bears almost zero resemblance to the everyday definition of of search and that there's just you know in the world in which we live there's just no getting around that fact and it's i think maybe the single most distorting feature of our of our contemporary search and seizure law yeah i think that's well put i mean it certainly happened in the seizure context i think one reason the supreme court decided terry versus ohio it is a controversial decision but i think one reason they decided it is they were worried that if they didn't give the police a way of doing a short-term detention that they could then regulate by requiring reasonable suspicion, uh, the lower courts would start saying a lot of police confrontations are not seizures at all. And so the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply at all. And the same thing has happened with searches. I mean, even the liberal justices said that if the police track you for an hour, 
it's not a search. Even the liberal justice back in the Nods case, back in the 80s, because they realized if they said, well, this is a search, we're going to need probable causes. So police can't even carry out very short term tracking without getting a warrant, which is going to be impossible in a lot of these cases because you don't yet have enough evidence to convince a magistrate that there's probable cause. The other outcome, if you if we don't follow the proportionality approach, and we've, we've seen this to some extent, is probable cause will be diluted. Okay, the police will say, well, we don't have much on this guy, but we're never going to get anything on this guy unless we start our investigation. So magistrate, please let us get a warrant, even though we only have a little bit of information on him. And what happens, I think, in some cases, is warrants are issued, despite the fact that there isn't probable cause as we would like it to be defined. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial it's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule all you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? 
stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. No, no you, you mentioned Terry versus Ohio as maybe the most famous example of the court explicitly adopting something akin to proportionality methodology. And, you know, obviously, you know, folks like you have defended it on those grounds, not all of Terry, but that principle, you know, people like Akil Amar have defended it on similar grounds. But I think I'd be remiss not to sort of talk about the incredible controversy that Terry has sure. caused. I think, you know, at least among mainstream or I don't know if you want to call it left of center, I don't know exactly how to characterize it, but among a lot of criminal procedure scholars, and especially those who focus 
you know, rightly on the issues of race and policing, Terry is one of just the worst decisions and truly reviled. And the theory is that, look, whatever the intellectual theoretical basis of Terry, which I think most people will accept at some point, the way it's played out is not that we'd have, we, we, we have some searching rigorous proportionality review, but rather that once you, once you eliminate the bright line of probable cause and you replace it with something squishier like reasonable suspicion, you've essentially, or at least over the decades, leading to just more and more and more police power. And so, you know, they, they might respond to your proportionality analysis and say, look, it's great in an ideal world, but, you know, because the police are so much more powerful as a, you know, call it constitutional interest group than prisoners, we need something as sharp as probable cause, even if we all kind of understand that it doesn't make sense in all circumstances, because the alternative is really just going to lead to unchecked government surveillance. And it's not going to stay proportional, you know, even under your theory. Yeah. I'm kind of curious. I know you thought about this. Yes, I think Terry is rightly criticized. I just gave an exam to my criminal procedure students, the last question of which was, do you think Terry versus Ohio should be overruled? And I think it was basically three to one. Yes, it should be overruled. For all the reasons you're suggesting, uh, it can clearly result in uh, abuse of police power. It's certainly applied in a racially discriminatory way. Uh, reasonable suspicion is a very squishy justification standard, as you put it. Um, so those are all problems. Again, one counter might be, well, if we don't have reasonable suspicion, we might not have any regulation at all. We've already talked about that. That's what we discussed a moment ago. But in addition, um, even though this is not what you're interviewing me about, I think some of the controversy over Terry can be addressed through proportionality reasoning. And I just completed an article on this. Um, the argument being that if we really think proportionality reasoning is the right approach to the Fourth Amendment, which I do, then we ought to look at how intrusive a stop and frisk is compared to, for instance, technological policing. The court has now said that tracking, at least prolonged tracking, and getting cell site location information are searches that require probable cause. Well, I, for years, have done survey research, and I talk a lot about this in my book, asking people how intrusive they think various kinds of police investigative techniques are. And stops and frisk are seen as pretty intrusive by the people who I survey. And in fact, at least as intrusive as tracking and almost as intrusive as obtaining location data through a, a common carrier. If that's true and we apply proportionality reasoning, then if probable cause is required for those kinds of technological policing techniques, then probable cause is also required for a stop and frisk. Now, then you ask, okay, well, then what's the difference between a stop and frisk and an arrest? Well, the way I spin this out in my article is Terry should be reinterpreted to require probable cause to believe the actress raised for an attempt is occurring. And that would be the only time the police could stop someone. In fact, I think that explains Terry. As you know, Terry involved people walking up and down in front of a storefront what, 20 times or so, conferring to a th uh, with a third person, and then meeting again in an alleyway. And uh, under the Mall Penal Code, that would be sufficient actus reus for attempt. But most of the stop and frisk that legal academics invade against do not involve the actus reus for attempt. And they would be impermissible if, again, we apply proportionality reasoning. Properly. Now, that's getting, getting far afield from this particular book, but I think it's an application of proportionality reasoning that also helps ex respond to the critiques 
of Jerry. Let me ask you another question about proportionality, which is the factor uh, of the severity of the crime, which ordinarily I think would be a central feature of thinking about when a particular police tactic is appropriate, right? And uh, I think we all have an intuitive understanding that if the police are investigating a credible threat of a nuclear weapon loose in a major city, that's very different than if the police are investigating littering or you know chewing gum or something like that. And yet the doctrine seems, at least the court so far, seems very uninterested in making these distinctions. And I'm curious for your thoughts on, on why that is and and how much of the kind of contemporary pathologies we have in, in criminal procedure, including with virtual surveillance, would be solved if we just recognize that maybe the police shouldn't have quite as much leeway when they're doing some misdemeanor investigation as when they're investigating a triple, triple homicide. Right. I make that recommendation throughout the book that there ought to be attention paid to the kinds of crimes that police are allowed to investigate using technology. At the same time, I'm not a fan of what some people think proportionality would dictate, which is that if it's a very, very serious crime, police don't don't need as much justification. In other words, if you're going to restrict policing at the minor crime end of the scale, maybe we should allow the police much more leeway at the serious end of the scale. And that would be the reasoning, right? That would be, if it were consistent throughout, that would be a possible approach. Well, what I say in, in the book is, I do not think that Justice Alito is right when he says in Jones that, hey, if it's an extraordinary crime, we might not require a probable cause. I think the level of intrusiveness ought to drive the justification level. And going into someone's house looking for evidence of a burglary or going to someone's house looking for evidence of terrorism, I think involves the same degree of intrusion. So we shouldn't modulate the justification needed depending upon what's being sought. And I'm just curious if you could just, if you could say more. I mean, and I'll, I'll kind of put my cards on the table. The, the reason I have always been a, you know, a fan of this, of your theory of proportionality, right, which you've been writing about for years and I've been you know, using for, for years, is because it seems to me to reflect a truth that is often obscured, which is that there's nothing special about police surveillance as a you know, tool of the regulatory state, right? Which is to say that government action across all sorts of domains is coercive to some degree. That's okay because we're trying to achieve certain important public goals, but because it's coercive, we have to limit what the government does. And the best way of thinking through that is proportionality or cost benefit. I mean, they're all sort of getting at the same thing. And, and it does seem to me, if you take that seriously, then then you should be more willing to impose more costs, as it were, if the potential benefit is is greater. And you know, putting aside the questions of, well, could that be abused? And do you need bright line mm-hmm. rules? Right. Which is there's kind of second order considerations. Why is it so bad if you're investigating a triple homicide to say, you know, we're just under judicial supervision, we're just going to allow more searches with less than probable cause, because this is really important to solve. Right. Um, well, of course, one easy answer to that is the Supreme Court has said you can't do that. And the Mincy case had said that there's no homicide exception to the warrant requirement. But let's put that aside because right, one of our one of our jobs is to contest everything the Supreme Court says. Um, and I think that's what you're doing here. My other answer would be that I think the Fourth Amendment is protecting against government intrusion. And that intrusion is the same regardless of what kind of crime they're investigating. 
If they are ransacking your house for evidence of terrorism, it's the same amount of intrusion as if they're ransacking your house for evidence of a burglary. And I think that should be the gravamen of the analysis. Now, in the book, and I make that argument in the book, but in the book, I also have a major caveat to that. If what the police are trying to do is prevent a serious crime, then I think it's permissible to lower the justification level. This is something that's recognized throughout our jurisprudence, that when prevention is the focus, we allow the government more leeway. Uh, we recognize that in uh, civil commitment statutes. We recognize it in Terry. Uh, what another justification for Terry is, is preventive technique. On the other hand, when it's, it's a completed crime, the goal of the police is not to prevent a serious act, but rather to solve a serious crime. We do not differentiate based on crime. Prosecution has to prove a crime is committed beyond reasonable doubt, whether it's a misdemeanor or the worst crime imaginable. It's always proof beyond reasonable doubt. We don't give the government a break just because the crime is serious. And I happen to think that's the right result. I think that's the way we should approach this. Let me ask you about one last part of proportionality analysis, or at least one last part of what we tend to think of as an important part of the Fourth Amendment, and we'll see how it maps proportionality. And that's the issue of particularity. You know, the idea that for the government surveillance technique to be legitimate, it can't just be sort of statistical, right? Based on, well, if we do enough searches, we're going to get enough evidence. There has to be a reason for why the government thinks that a particular piece of evidence is at a particular place or with a particular person. And, you know, one question, just a general question for you is, you know, how does that fit into your proportionality framework? And, and the other question is in particular in the context of the technological policing that you talk about, how does that fit into whether it's the profile-driven searches that you talk about or what we might call predictive policing, the event-driven searches that you talk about, you know, a bomb happened and we want to you know, search everyone who is near it, or the program-driven searches you talk about, right? You know, we, we want to potentially search everyone's computer for child exploitation. I mean, all of those types of searches, in contrast to the suspect-driven searches, which is the sort of you know, specific person, we're, we're searching them technologically. All of those types of searches seem to be in some deep sense incompatible with particularity. And yet they are more and more important as parts of the crime fighting apparatus. So where do you, how does that all play out? Yeah, so that that's, I'm going to try to answer that fairly quickly. Just so the audience knows, the book talks about three basic kinds of searches, suspect-driven, which is when the police already have a suspect, and their particularity is usually not much of a problem, as you suggest. I mean, you know who you're going after and what you want with respect to the person. But then there are profile-driven searches, which do not involve an identified suspect, but rather the police develop profile, which is trying to identify people who might be about to commit a crime or the kinds of people who might be criminals. And this has gotten a lot of press lately under the rubric of predictive policing. The police develop these profiles and go out in the community and use these profiles to try to predict who's going to commit crime. Very controversial. And then there's event-driven virtual searching, which is police don't have an identified suspect. They're not using a, a profile of the type I just described, a predictive profile, but the crime has already happened. And they're using evidence from that crime scene to try to figure out who the perpetrator is. This could be DNA, a DNA sample. It could be what today is called geofencing, where a crime has occurred 
and the police go to a common carrier to see what phone numbers were near the crime scene at the time it occurred. Um, there's something called AIR that's gotten a lot of press lately. It's a program that was in Baltimore, it's now discontinued, where planes were flying over Baltimore 24-7 and collecting visual evidence. And then if a crime occurred, uh, the police would go back to this collected aerial surveillance and try to figure out um, who was near the crime scene at the time the crime occurred using the surveillance information that had been collected. So those are all examples of event-driven. So you're asking, how does particular requirement affect profile-driven and event-driven virtual searching? And I try to deal with it. I think it's a very important question. I think a profile alone should never be a legitimate basis, a sufficient basis for a stop. Um, first of all, I, re I require those profiles to have a good hit rate. That is a hit rate that proportionality analysis would require. So for instance, a hit rate of 50% if we're talking probable cause, 30% or so if we're talking reasonable suspicion. But in addition, and this is the particularity point, I don't think a profile should justify a search or a seizure unless the police observe conduct that is suspicious. In other words, there needs to be a conduct requirement that individualizes, particularizes the person being subjected to the stop based on the profile. Because otherwise, police could stop anybody and everybody who fit the profile anytime they want to, because the person's always fitting the profile, right? Um, so they could stop, stop them now and then in 10 minutes stop them again, because they're still meeting the profile. There needs to be conduct that particularizes the profile-driven search. With respect to event-driven searches and seizures, let's use the geofencing example. Um, what I say in the book is that the police should not be able to willy-nilly get every phone number that was anywhere near the crime scene two hours before and two hours after the crime. The court order that authorizes geofencing needs to specify within a fairly short time frame and a fairly narrow geographic area the phone numbers that can be obtained. Now, even with that particular requirement, a lot of people would argue that geofencing should not be permitted. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the average law review article on geofencing has said we should not allow it. But I say it should be allowed. If we particularize the geofencing procedure the way I just described. So I, I think that it's a short-winded answer to your question about particularity. So I, I want to get to the sort of the other part, the, the procedural part. But before I do, and close out the substantive question about I don't want to say relaxing the probable cause standard because it's more complicated than that, but let's scale out modifying the probable cause standard. Do you think the court will allow this? And the reason I ask is, you know, if you read Carpenter, on the one hand, it's a great decision because it, I think, deals with the reality that the third party doctrine does just does not work in the simplistic way it's worked. And this is obviously a search. But then sort of the back half of the decision, which is actually very short, about, okay, well, what should the government have to do? was to me depressingly um, dismissive of the government's argument that, look, here, and this will, this gets us into the procedural point, this isn't just the police freelancing. There's literally a congressional statute that sets right. out a very detailed process that, sure, requires less than probable cause, but requires much more than just nothing. And the Supreme Court just kind of just gave it the back of the hand, right? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that made me quite pessimistic as to the court's willingness to be flexible and adopt these new standards. I'm curious if you share my skepticism or if you think maybe the court has moved on from that, from that dismissive attitude. No, I, I think you're raising a very good point. I think 
one response I'd have to what you're asking is the court is so used to thinking about the Fourth Amendment in what I call probable cause forever terms. And I don't also, by the way, I don't think the briefs, at least on the on Carpenter's side, even raise the possibility of proportionality. I think it has not been confronted directly with the issue and is going to continue as courts are wont to do with things the way they've always proceeded until they're directly confronted with the relevant argument. And so what, why might I be optimistic, despite what I just said? Well, I think both Jones and Carpenter have suggested do make a distinction between long-term tracking in Jones and acquisition of large amounts of cell site location information in Carpenter and lesser intrusions. Now, granted, the distinctions between what's a search and what isn't a search, and I'm arguing everything's a search, and then some searches shouldn't require as much justification. But nonetheless, there is that innuendo. And it's also in Riley, where Riley says going through a cell phone is terrifically different than going through someone's wallet. So in other words, there is this recognition that there are levels of intrusion. And also, the court's special needs cases routinely differentiate between intrusive and relatively intrusive and relatively unintrusive kinds of searches and seizures. So there is definitely insinuation in a number of the court's cases that proportionality would be amenable to many of the justices. But you're absolutely right. The covering majority giving the back of the hand of the 2703D court order, which is very close to probable cause, to tell you the truth in practice, is disconcerting for someone who adopts my position. Let's move now from the substantive principle you articulate in the book to the procedural principle. And in a way, I think that this is even is even somehow maybe even more important, if only because this is something that the courts have really not thought about at all. I mean, courts do grapple with the substantive issue, but they really have barely thought, I think, in a way that's really problematic about the procedural point. And that is this idea that, that you argue for, I think very compellingly, that an important safeguard against over-surveillance is that you need the legislature involved to actively authorize these surveillance techniques, right? There can't just be this inherent, you know, power that police and sheriffs and whatnot have just to do whatever they think is reasonable, even if it is in fact reasonable. It needs to be drawn from a direct um, authorization by, by the legislature. And, you know, why do you think that, or do you think that this requirement of legislative authorization is even more important in the case of virtual searches, right? Is it is there something about virtual searches that makes this more important? Or is it has this always been important and this and just that, that virtual searches give us an opportunity to finally realize that? Well I, I think it's always been important, but I think virtual searches allow us to see much more clearly the damage that can be perpetrated when legislatures aren't brought in to the regulatory regime. Because right now, what we have are police departments willy-nilly adopting surveillance programs and data accumulation programs so they can carry out these suspect-driven, profile-driven, and event-driven virtual searches. And what is the authority for doing that? Basically, the chief of police has been to some tech show and been impressed by the sales pitch from Axon Corporation or from Palantir or one of these other private companies out there that are trying to, to corner the market and all these technologies. You know, in, in, the de- in their defense, I hear they're, they're pretty amazing tech shows. I hear they put on, they put on a, quite a party. <laughs> yeah, I've been to some and they are, they are very impressive. And some of the stuff they can do is pretty amazing. Um, and again, 
it can be a real boon to law enforcement in a way I think that we should not we should not badmouth without thinking more carefully about how to regulate this stuff. But um, what I argue is that if the police departments can develop a program designed to collect the information necessary for suspect-driven, profile-driven, and event-driven virtual searches, it has to be authorized by the legislature, and it has to be authorized in a way that's much more specific than currently exists. I talk a fair amount in my book about fusion centers, which are these centers that exist throughout the country. There are probably more than 80 now, some of them with more than 200 personnel um, who are just sucking up information about all of us from lots of different sources. I interviewed one uh, fusion center person who said people would throw a fit if they knew what we were collecting. Oh, so what's the authority for these fusion centers? There is none. Or there's very minimal. There's There are often contracts with the federal government, but there's no federal statute that specifically lays out the kinds of information fusion centers ought to be able to collect, the purpose for which the information can be used, security and accountability measures. There's nothing like that out there. And I think there absolutely has to be. Now, this can be true of any kind of program, even a traditional search program, where using physical kinds of intrusions um, to get information. But it's given the nature of technology, it's so, so much more obvious that this kind of huge information collection regime is going on with very little authorization from a legislative level. So for instance, the authorizing statute in New York City for its domain awareness system, which goes beyond fusion centers, it collects lots of different kinds of information, both digitally and also in real time using CCTV and so on. The authorization for that, as far as I can make out, is the New York State statute that says, police may detect and deter crime. That's the authorization. No specificity whatsoever that in any way relates to what the domain awareness program is actually doing. So the next question, which maybe you were going to ask, but I will answer it whether you were going to ask it or not, is, okay, so how do we get the legislatures to do this? How do we force legislatures to do this? How do we force police to stop doing what they're doing until they get legislative authorization? Well, I think here it seems obvious to me, but it's so obvious and yet, no one's really suggested yet that I'm afraid I'm just dead wrong about it. But it seems to me the Administrative Procedure Acts that exist in every state, as well as at the federal level, and actually even in some municipalities, ought to be applicable to police agencies. Police agencies are agencies. And they, just like the Environmental Protection Agency at the federal level, just like state agencies that are not involved with criminal law enforcement, they ought to be regulated by these APAs. In fact, they're not. The typical administrative law treatise will tell you police agencies are one type of agency that are not subject to Administrative Procedure Acts. If they were, and I'll stop with this, but if they were, you have to have legislative authorization. Otherwise, you're ultraviaries. And it has to be not necessarily real specific delegation, but something beyond go out and fight crime. And in addition, there are notice and comment requirements. There are rationality requirements. There's hard look review by the courts. There's a whole regime of regulation that other agencies have to abide by all the time that police departments don't have to at all. And I think if we imported that into the criminal law enforcement area, it would make a world of difference. So I, I'm not I'm not averse to the idea of using the APA or kind of state and local APAs, but it does strike me that that making that kind of argument 
would fundamentally be a statutory argument or an argument about existing administrative law, and it would lose an important flavor or an important motivating force, which I think is a constitutional point. I mean, it, the way mm-hmm. I read the argument both in the book, and obviously I've you know, been reading your argument on this for many years, is that this isn't just a matter of there's some statute and the you know, police are violating it. It's that the whole idea of a well-functioning democracy or government that that allows us to be secure in our person's papers, places, and you know, effects, that sort of thing, requires legislative authorization. And so it just it strikes me that the argument is substantively a good one, but you should just just isn't it really a constitutional argument that you're making? Well, okay, I try to turn that on his head and I say, if the Constitution doesn't apply, look, we still got this backup. We've got the Administrative Procedure Act. And I, I really think it's a solid argument, if I do say so myself. And I, I hope that some courts look into it. But addressing your point, can we constitutionalize what I'm arguing? I think we can. But once again, the case law is so bare bones on this that it will, it's a heavy pull. However, there is some case law. If you look at the court's health and safety inspection cases, that is health and safety inspections of businesses, the court will, granted, not in any detail, but it will mention that if there are not statutory and administrative guidelines for what is being done here, then the Constitution, the Fourth Amendment, comes into play. So basically, it's a safe harbor kind of idea that if what I'm arguing should happen or the APA happens, then the courts might adopt a handoff attitude, which would be fine with me. But if the legislatures and police do not abide by the APA, then the courts should step in. And that would be the way I would frame the constitutional argument, that the Fourth Amendment does have something to say if legislatures and police are not going to do a darn thing. So I, I could spend all day talking to you about this, but I, I think we'll 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 have to leave it there. It's it's a marvelous book. It's a rich book, but it also has the virtues of being uh, two hundred pages and eminently readable. Mm-hmm. So it's also a wonderful primary if you just want to understand the current legal regime that governs this really important part of our lives. Uh, thank you so much, Chris, for joining me. Well, thank you very much. On great questions. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thanks for listening. Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts.